You're listening to the Bible teachings of Reality Church Stockton. For more info, please visit our website at realitystockton.com. Our text today is from Nehemiah, beginning in chapter 1, verse 11. Now I was cupbearer to the king. In the month of Nisan, in the twentieth year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, Why is your face sad, seeing you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, Let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad, when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins, and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Then the king said to me, What are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven, and I said to the king, If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, How long will you be gone, and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. And I said to the king, If it pleases the king, let letters be given to me to the governors of the province beyond the river, that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple, and for the wall of the city, and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked, for the good hand of the God of my God was upon me. This is the word of the Lord. I don't know about you, but I love a who like a, a good who's done it movie. Sort of a murder mystery type movie. Michelle and I were watching one recently, and I would say less than 30 minutes into it, she fell asleep, which is normally my move, uh, but she fell asleep. So what we ended up doing was we went back, and I watched it over from the point where she had left off with her, this time with hindsight, this time seeing all of the clues that I had missed. And when I knew, you know, the clues that I should be listening to or looking for, they were glaring. They're like, duh, the guy switched the drink. Or, wait, he called her by a different name right there. Things that I did, you know, I otherwise would have missed before, but then with hindsight and knowing the conclusion of the story, I'm like, oh, they were all there all along. As the events of Nehemiah 2 unfold, there is suspense, there is fear, there is uncertainty, there's a serious level of risk involved. Nehemiah has just crossed this threshold past the point of no return, what is going to happen? This story is filled with tension. But it's not until after, in retrospect, that we recognize that the plan came together, it worked out favorably, the impossible was possible, the king granted these wild requests. Why? Because the gracious hand of God was involved. We're told that at the end. We, we see otherwise random details are, wait a minute, those aren't so random details. The fact that it's Nissan, I don't know if that's how you pronounce it, but we had a Centro once, and so that's how we're going to say it. The fact that, or Michelle had a Centro, the fact that it was Nissan, which is the, the 
like a spring season month, and it was historically a time of celebration and peace, well, that's a good time to ask for a request. Get the king in a good mood. And the fact that Nehemiah was a trusted person in a position that he was as the cupbearer, he had the ear of the most powerful man in the known world at this time. Or the fact that the king just happened to perceive that Nehemiah was sad in his heart on this very day. Nehemiah couldn't just bring this up. This was very much a speak when spoken to sort of arrangement when you're in the presence of a king like this. The fact that the queen would have been there, which I didn't know this, but it wouldn't have been very common for the queen to be in a, in a situation like this. Probably putting a little bit of social pressure on the king to be extra generous. He's got to look good for his woman. And on and on and on. Nehemiah describes all of these otherwise random details like this in verse 8. The good hand of my God was upon me. When he steps back and he sees how it's all unfolded, he's like, God was involved. This wasn't random. The theological term for this is providence. And a helpful way to understand what providence is, is it's, it's the hidden hand of God at work in history. God's hand at, at work in history even when you can't see it. God has a divine purpose for the world, and he, as the king, is governing everything from the smallest details to the largest details in order to bring about his good plan. And guess what? God will not fail. That's where you say amen. 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 But here's the deal. A research group named Barna surveyed teens today across the globe. And among the different groups that they interviewed, all teens, teens of other faiths, teens of no faith, and then Christian teens, the stats that caught my attention for obvious reasons were Christian teens. And what they found among believing teens is that 32% of them believe that God is active in the world today. So let me say it differently. Two-thirds of the next generation of Christians to carry on the Christian faith believe in a world void of providence. Void of the hand of God. Abandoned to just figure it out on our own. But let's think about that. What would life be without providence? What is life without providence? First, it's fate. Whatever is, must be. Que sera, sera. It's all impersonal. Everything happens for this vague, general reason with no regard for goodness or justice or beauty or love, but because everything is simply governed by some predetermined, uncaring forces of nature that are just forcing themselves upon it. What is life without providence? It's chance. It's all random. Just molecules colliding, resulting in innumerable chain reactions that have no intentional direction. The person that you love, the children that bear your resemblance, the community that you enjoy, your childhood friends, all of the things in your life that you deeply enjoy and love, there is no reason for it. It's just random and meaningless. What's life without providence? It's self-determination. You create your destiny. 
You write your own story, and it's on you to fulfill your dreams. The weight of your future rests on you, and you alone, good luck. What is life without providence? It's a life of using people. Think about this. If there is no hand of God to support you or to guide you or to provide for you, then you are naturally going to turn to the people around you to provide for you and support you and guide you. And you will inevitably place God-like expectation on people that were never designed to fulfill that. And on the little theater stage of your story, where everyone else is expected to play their supporting role in your story, and when people fail you, not if, but when people fail you, you will find someone else to do the job for them. Whatever it is that replaces providence in your life, here's the deal. It all leads to the same conclusion, despair. It all leads to the same conclusion, hopelessness. Hope cannot exist in a world void of providence. Hope cannot exist in a world that is based on fate or chance or self-determination or using people. Hope only exists in a world where something, or we believe more specifically, someone from outside of it breaks in to open up new possibilities. As we look at this passage, the tension for us, the reader, is already resolved. Nehemiah has already told us what happened here. We already see the hidden hand of God involved in the unfolding events. So what I want to do is point out how trusting in the providence of God actually changes us, how it impacted and affected Nehemiah, and how believing the providence of God can impact and affect us today as well. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at this passage under three headings, that the providence of God uh, makes for people that plan patiently, prepare to risk, and pursue the impossible. So let's look first at providence makes for people who plan patiently. Look with me again in verse 1. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th century, I'm sorry, in the 20th year of the king Artaxerxes, this is going to be a fun morning, when wine was before him, that helps, I took up the wine and I gave it to the king. Now, I had not been sad in his presence. So the story of Nehemiah begins in the month of Chislev. In chapter 1, we see that. That is a winter month that is most likely somewhere around December or early winter. And from that point forward, we're told that Nehemiah devoted himself to prayer and fasting day and night until here in chapter 2, in the month of Nisan, which is the, about April. So somewhere around four months. For four months... Four months of what maybe some would consider negligence. Four months of what some may, you know, categorize as inactivity. Him just sitting on this really important news. Nehemiah tells us that he had not yet been sad in the king's presence, meaning he did not initially react. He showed restraint. He didn't find the need to virtue signal. He did not find the need to broadcast his emotions for everyone to see. Instead, he had wisely reserved that for his time with God. 
Now, don't get me wrong, Nehemiah is not stoic. Nehemiah is self-controlled, which is a fruit of the Spirit, by the way. He's being self-controlled. Like we're told uh, about Mary in the birth narrative of Jesus, when all the people around her are having these very demonstrative responses to the news of Jesus Christ, we're told in Luke chapter 2, but Mary treasured up these things, pondering them in her heart. The more important the thing is, the more that we need to make sure that we give it time and space to be processed and to be refined by fire, to be processed in our time of prayer before the Lord, waiting on the Lord. But some may say, hey, wait, 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 silence is complicity. I've been told that all my life. Well, that's not necessarily true, by the way. But as we see here, Nehemiah will speak eventually. He will speak up. He will allow his emotions and his concerns to be seen and heard. But when that happens, it will be exact. It's going to be thoughtful. It's going to be winsome. It's going to be wise. No words wasted. Nothing regrettable said. He's not going to have to go back and clean up what he's said. It will be sharp as a surgeon's knife. How? How does Nehemiah do something like this? And the answer is because it's been all processed and spoken about in God's presence. It's not that Nehemiah has been silent up to this point. It's that he's been pleading with the highest authority. He has spoken to the one who is able to do something about it. Nehemiah resolves this dilemma that I think that exists today between praying and planning. And I think what it shows us is that praying and planning are not at odds. He prayed and he planned. There's an old adage that, you know, man plans his ways and God laughs. You ever heard that before? Yeah. I don't think it's true. I, I, don't, I think it misses the point. Proverbs says the heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his step. We're not being discouraged from planning. Far from it. I think we are encouraged to be a planning people. What we're discouraged from doing is trusting in our plans. We're not discouraged from planning. We are discouraged from expecting God to bend his will to our plans. We're not discouraged from planning. We're discouraged from being arrogant enough to think that our plans are ultimate. What we see here is that Nehemiah prays and he fasts day and night for four months. He believes in the power and the provision of God. He knows that apart from God's gracious intervention in this situation, it is utterly doomed. But let's not neglect the fact that at this time, maybe even in his times of prayer, he's also been refining a very detailed plan, one that's now been shaped by God, so that when the time is right, he'll be ready to make his move with confidence. And guess what? That time comes. That very moment comes when the king asks in verse 4, what are you requesting? All right, Nehemiah, what is it? What are you asking for? And Nehemiah presents a mission and a vision. What the plan is, what he's going to need to make it happen, what kind of material he's going to need, the setbacks to anticipate, how long he'll be gone, all of it. 
Derek Kidner, who's a commentator on this passage, said this, Vagueness at this point would have shown up the project as a mere dream and a sudden impulse. We as a people today are filled with good ideas, and that's as far as they go. Dreams. But Nehemiah had prayed long enough and had faith enough, hear these words, to visualize the operation in some detail. It wasn't just a vague wish dream. It was something that he had processed long and hard in prayer, and he was beginning to be able to see it come to fruition before it ever got off the ground. That's faith. That's hope. Reality, this is what I want to invite you to do this year as you pray for the people of God, and I hope that you are praying for your church community daily. As you pray for the city that you occupy, as you pray for your community and your family, as you pray and you fast about the rebuilding that God desires to do among his people, as you prepare to sacrifice, as you prepare to serve, as you prepare to give money, as you prepare to participate, I want you to begin to visualize it as a well. Do not allow it to remain vague. Do not allow it to just be this vague, abstract, wished dream and idea. Detail a plan. Detail a plan that has been submitted to God, that maps out your involvement, that maps out your participation in the kingdom of God. What would it look like if it actually came true? The second thing we see here is that the providence of God makes for a people who are prepared to risk, prepared to risk. Trust in the providence of God makes for someone who is willing to take serious risks for what's important. I guess that's a very important caveat there. Not just willing to take risks willy-nilly, but willing to take risks for what's important. Willing to expose themselves to the possibility of injury or loss or, God forbid, even death in order to pursue the things of God. Look with me again in verses two through three. And the king said to me, why is your face sad? Seeing you're not sick. This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I was very much what? Afraid. I said to the king, let the king live forever long, live the king. Why should not my face be sad? When the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire. Now a little subtlety here is that Artaxerxes is the reason that the the building operation of the wall years before had been shut down. (laughs) So it's mildly passive aggressive here. Why wouldn't I be sad? Now this is going to be lost on us 21st century readers, but Nehemiah is in a very tense environment right now. The stakes are very high. In fact, there's actually Persian art from this very time period depicting people approaching the king, coming into the king's presence with their hands over their mouths. And it was a way of making sure that your face or your expressions, or listen, even your bad breath didn't bring the mood down because kings like this were known for violent outbursts over the most trivial disruptions. I think about like the Queen of Hearts in Alice in Wonderland, like off with her head, like I'm just annoyed by you, dead. 
one misstep, and it could cost Nehemiah his life. I mean, life and death hang in the balance right now. But Nehemiah lets his guards down for just a moment, and the king notices. It's the king's job to notice this sort of thing. The king discerns trouble because to a paranoid ruler who is always subject to being overthrown, who's got to be watching his back, this could indicate, even just the slightest change in his disposition could indicate contempt. What's he hiding? Wait, what does Nehemiah know that I don't know? Is there a coup beginning right now? Has he poisoned my drink? On and on and on. It makes perfect sense why Nehemiah is freaked out in this moment. It's just got real. But he does not allow his fear to stop him. This is so important, and we know this. Courage is not the absence of fear. Courage is what you do in the face of fear. And I want you to notice a specific step that Nehemiah takes in his moment of absolute dread and fear. What gives him courage? What gives him confidence to press forward in this moment? Verse four, so I prayed to the God of heaven. I'm going to give you something very important right now. So I'm gonna ask for your attention. I'm giving you gold. And I'm not saying that because I'm telling you this, but because I learned it from someone else. For the Christian, courage is not about ignoring your fears. For the Christian, courage is not about stuffing or, you know, sort of pushing down your fears or ignoring them. For the Christian, courage isn't even about conquering your fears. That's kind of silly. No one can conquer their fears. But for the Christian, courage is about redirecting your fear. What's happening right now? There's an exchange happening. There's a transfer happening from fear of the king to fear of the Lord. In Isaiah chapter eight, we're told this. Do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Listen to these words. Let him be your fear. Let him be your dread. Tremble not at the things that the world trembles at. Tremble in the presence of Almighty God. Some of you may be saying, well, that's Old Testament talk. That's the Old Testament God as if that's a thing. That's not a thing, by the way. But let me tell you this, Matthew chapter 10, the words of Jesus himself. And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. So here's the principle. Only fear of God can overcome the fear of man. Only transferring your fear and trembling towards the one who has the power of life and death in his hands can release you from the fears of man from the fears of things that can happen to you in this life. And in this short prayer, Nehemiah is reminding, is reminded that Artaxerxes does have a lot of power. But even his power does not rival the power of God in heaven. This king before him, Artaxerxes, he is the emperor over a very broad empire right now. But what he knows is what we need to know today as well, that there's a higher king 
the king of kings that rules over it all. And with this confidence, he makes a bold and a risky move. Now, I think for us today, sometimes I think that we hide our cowardice under the guise of trust. We, we veil it in sort of spiritual jargon. I'm just waiting on the Lord. I'm just waiting on the Lord. If God's going to do it, he's going to do it with or without me. He doesn't need me. You know, God, God can do it. And I think in our moment of hesitation, in our moment of unwillingness to take risks and step out for the kingdom of God, what we need to do is we need to ask ourselves a question. Is this genuine trust in God or is this just fear of failure? Am I really trusting God right now or am I just afraid to fail? Is this waiting on the Lord or is this spiritual paralysis? How we respond to risk reveals what we believe to be true about safety. We pray a lot for safety. We pray for travel mercies. We pray for safety over our loved ones. We pray for protection. Safety, safety, safety. Have we ever stopped to consider this important question? What is the role of safety in the life of faith? Is this a godly goal? Is this something to be pursuing? I want to burst your bubble today. Safety is a myth. Safety is a myth. No one is safe. No one is safe in the way that we at least expect to be safe and want to be safe. Everyone here experiences loss. Everyone here experiences hurt. Everyone here experiences vulnerability. Everyone here is going to experience eventually death. God is our refuge. But is that not true if I die on my way home in the car? Has he failed to be who he is if I don't experience the kind of safety that I expect getting home today? For the Christian, safety isn't just a myth. I want to go further. I think safety is a hindrance to a life of faithfulness. Jesus did not call his disciples to safety. Jesus explicitly calls his disciples, you and I, to a life of carrying our cross, of death to ourselves. Jesus does not promise a life without suffering. The very opposite, Jesus promises us that our life will be filled with suffering. Jesus does not promise us a life free of suffering. What he promises us is that even suffering itself will not be able to separate us from the abundant love of Jesus Christ. What Jesus promises us is that even when we experience suffering, that suffering is doing something. Suffering, as Romans 5 tells us, is producing endurance, and endurance is producing character, and character is producing hope, and guess what? Hope will not put us to shame. There will be no embarrassment when you go all in on Christ, even if it costs you your life. Jesus himself said in Luke 21, you will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends. And some of you they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake, but not a hair on your head will perish. What? (laughs) You're gonna die but not a hair on your head will perish. What does this mean? 
You see, the gospel promises us something better than safety. The gospel promises us the hope of eternity, that no one will be able to pluck us from the safe and secure hand of God. They may even put you to death, but now even death itself has no power over you. There's a famous story of John Chrysostom, the Archbishop of Constantinople in the 5th century Byzantine Empire, coming... Uh, when the Empress Eudoxia and the Emperor Arcadius were coming against him, that's a mouthful. Suffice it to say, the king and queen did not like that this guy was preaching the gospel. Stop it. And so Eudoxia threatens John with banishment if he doesn't stop sharing the gospel, to which he replies, you cannot banish me for the world is my father's house. Where are you going to send me? but I will kill you, the empress said. No, you can't, for my life is hid with Christ and God. Well, then I'll take away your treasure, said the doxia. No, you can't, for my treasure is in heaven and my heart is there too. But I'll drive you away from your friends and you will have no one left. Eudoxia responded, no, you cannot, said John, for I have a friend in heaven from whom you cannot separate me. I defy you, for there is nothing that you can do to harm me. What are you gonna do? What's your move? There's nothing that you can take from me. I want us to think about this. What are we really risking for Christ? What are we really risking if what we believe to be true about Jesus is actually true? That we have everything in him. The hope of the gospel is not only the power, but also the motivation for us to take risks for the kingdom. Think about this. Jesus has conquered the grave. Jesus has conquered death. Death is defeated. As the apostle Paul said, for Christ, uh, to live is Christ and to die is what? Gain, reward. And Jesus has risen. The resurrection of Jesus opens up possibilities into a world that is otherwise doomed to death and despair. Life has broken in. And Christ has ascended. He's at the right hand of the Father, above every name that is named, ruling and reigning over our world, ruling and reigning over our lives. My life is in his hands. And Jesus is coming again. We know the direction this world is moving. We know the end of the story. Yeah, it's probably going to get worse before it gets better. Yeah, things are probably going to get really chaotic and everything's going to shift and the church itself may even stagger. But Jesus is coming again to renew all things. The future is sure, including my future. My life is in his hands. Reality, let's honor Christ and let's honor the gospel by taking some risks for the kingdom of God. Amen? Lastly and finally, Providence makes for people who pursue the impossible. Look with me again in verses 7 through 8. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given to me, to the governors of the province beyond the river, that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah, and a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple, and for the wall of the city, and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me. 
Nehemiah aims for the moon. Yeah, I'm going to need a you know, personal letter of recommendation with your name on it. I'm going to need access to your personal forest. I'm going to need timber for your forest, for the temple and the wall. And then he sneaks this one at the end. I'm going to need you to like hook me up with a crib while I'm there, right? Like my own place. Nehemiah just went from like 50-50, he's going to die for having a sad face. To pulling out all the stops. Like, let me give you my laundry list of things that I want you to do. Based on what? What makes this story inspiring to me is how unqualified Nehemiah was for this task. He loved God. He was a praying man. He was a man of faith. He was a faithful servant in the king's uh, company. The king trusted him with his life, literally. But there is nothing in this story that indicates that Nehemiah himself had what it took to accomplish the task that is ahead of him. There is nothing in this story that tells us that Nehemiah is ready to be the foreman on this significant of a job. But what he did bring to the table, and what we can bring to the table as well, is daring faith. There have been seasons and times in our lives where Michelle and I have taken serious risks. The the kinds that, that, if I were to be honest with you right now, I'd be afraid to take at this point in my life. Yeah, let's move across the world at 23 years old with a pregnant wife and a preschool child with absolutely no place to live, a plan to plant a church, but no credentials to do it, no support, and let's just like go for it. Sure, why not? We didn't have much to offer, but we went for it. And I can tell you right now, it was probably one of the most extraordinary times of our lives. It came with loss. It came with discouragement. We got our, we got our arses handed to us, I'm telling you right now. It was tough. But man, was it worth it. It was worth it. And again, I'm, we didn't have much to offer. What we did bring to the table, and I believe that what we can bring to the table is faith that God could do the impossible. And I remember someone specifically saying, yeah, it's probably not going to happen. It's probably not going to happen. But if it is going to happen, here's how it's going to happen. It's going to happen through God literally moving mountains in front of you. And guess what? That's what we started praying for. Okay, now we know how to pray. God, move mountains. What I want to do is I want to conclude with this quote by A.W. Tozer and just cause us to begin to assess our personal goals, and our goals as a church, the things that we are striving for, the risks that we are and are not willing to make. A.W. Tozer once said, God is looking for people through whom he can do the impossible. What a pity that we plan only the things that we can do by ourselves. What a pity that we plan only the things that we can do by ourselves. Let's pray. Father,